Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. My name is Katrina Stanton. I'm Inyash Brodsky. And I'm Stephen Zuber. And hey. we're joined today by Brian Andrew Dunning. Brian Dunning is an American writer and producer who focuses on skepticism. He's hosted a weekly podcast, Skeptoid, since 2006, and is the author of five books on scientific skepticism. And he's the executive producer of The Skeptologists and Truth Hurts. Skeptoid is a 501c3 educational nonprofit. He's also the writer, director, and star of the 40-minute introduction to critical thinking called Here Be Dragons. And I think you mentioned that the sequel to that is on the, on the way or in production at some point, right? Yes, it is. I'm uh, hoping to shoot that this summer. Cool. Is there anything we missed? No, I don't think so. Um, yeah, there's a bunch of bunch of little projects that have kind of come and gone, uh, trying to throw things at the wall and see what sticks. Some things do, some things don't. But uh, you know, when you're trying to when you're trying to make a living in uh, in new media, you've got to try all the different things you can, and um, so that's what I do. All righty. How's that? Um, let's see. You mentioned on the podcast at some point the uh, that specifically it's like in fact, but all diet stuff. Yeah, there's a new video series that uh, I launched at the end of 2015 called The Feeding Tube. And uh, it's it's a three-minute YouTube series, uh, and it addresses, each episode addresses a particular food woo. There's, you know, the, the whole thing with, with pop foodieism is so full of misinformation and so full of pseudoscience that uh, I felt a show dedicated specifically to that uh, was, was in order. Uh, that one's got a slow slow start, but uh, I have uh, high hopes for it. And we should clarify to the audience quickly, if they haven't heard the term before, woo is a uh, slang term for oh. bullcrap. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Mystical, woo. you know, things are magical and your body is a temple sort of crap. Woo-woo is a great term. Everyone should use it more often. Not that your body isn't a temple, but, you know, they mean it more in the magical sense. It smells like bullshit to me. <laughs> yeah, basically, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so uh, we are called The Bayesian Conspiracy, and our podcast fo uh, focuses a lot on Bayesian rationalism, which we consider fairly close to skepticism. I was curious, have you heard of uh, rationalism before, or um, less wrong ra rationalism sometimes it's called? Not to be confused with Cartesian rationalism. Right. <laughs> I, I, I should say that uh, I hear a lot of labels applied to uh, different groups, and often I find that they, uh, the meaning that one group uses is not the meaning that another group understands. So I've certainly heard people who call themselves rationalists, and in my experience it usually applies to atheist activists and uh, that sort of thing. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's not necessarily the same overlap. I bet skepticism gets a lot of the same... Same business there too, mm -hmm. and we're yeah, a little bit much. different than those um, those atheist activists, right? I mean, the, the most people in rationalism are atheists, but I don't think they're very activist about it. It's not a large concern anymore, right? Yeah. Well, like I say, the different labels seem to mean different things to different people. I try to avoid them completely. So, <laughs> well, you you stick with the skepticism label, though. What does skepticism mean in your view? Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's a problematic term, though, like like so many labels, because if you say that you're a skeptic, most people uh, will say, oh, so you're the people who, you know, think we didn't go to the moon and who think 9-11 was an inside job. Wow. Uh, basically, like meaning opposite of the, skepticism. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, you know, because it's similar to words that have, uh, like the word theory, in, and the words theory and consensus are two great examples of words that have mean, specific meanings within the context of the scientific method, 
but they're very different from how those words are used in pop culture. And skepticism is the same thing. In pop culture, it's a fairly negative term, and it usually is understood to apply to crazy people. And in the scientific sense, its meaning is very different. So that's why I say it's a problematic term. I would certainly say that I practice skepticism within the scientific sense, but it's a tough word to use among the general public because it's almost always going to be misunderstood to mean the opposite of what I hope it means. So what do you hope it means then? What is skepticism in the scientific sense? Skepticism is basically the process of requiring a decent standard of evidence. Uh, if, uh, if somebody says, I've got a miracle cure for cancer, the default skeptical position is saying, show me the evidence. And until that evidence is, is presented and passes peer review and gains consensus, and again, that has a separate meaning in science than it has in the general public, then um, then we usually reject this new claim. And that's basically skepticism. It's the, the rejection of new claims um, uh, until they can be proven to be meaningful. Actually, I have a question for you based on that definition. What would you say you believe? What is one belief that you have that does not have adequate evidence? That, that that's a great question. Um, there's all sorts of things like uh, you know emotions and love and things like that that we can't really prove that exist. It would be hard for me to think of something um, other than that kind of thing. Now, certainly there are things that I'm wrong about, things that I believe that aren't true. The problem is I can't tell you what those are because, like most people, I don't deliberately believe any. Thing that I know to not be true. So, do you do you have any beliefs though that you're just kind of unsure about? Like you you figure I don't have enough evidence for this, but it seems right, so I'd give it like sixty percent credence until more comes in. I'm, I'm sure I do. Um, off the top of my head, you know, I can like say, okay, there's a there's a can of Dr Pepper on my desk. <laughs> I'm ninety nine point nine 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 percent sure that's true. Um, I I don't have a belief in deities of any particular sort. And I would say I'm 99.994% sure about that. And it's a scale that goes down from there. There's, there's a lot of things in fields of research that where we have, you know, the current best explanation, the current best idea of what's true. For example, ask me anything in astronomy about uh, black holes or, or things like that. And, you know, I'll say, well, we're 90% sure of this. So that sounds like kind of a materialist oriented answer to your question. But I, that's, I think, would be my best answer. It's okay. I think that's an answer that we were kind of hoping to get. Um, we're all about assigning probabilities to our beliefs and updating yes. them as we get additional evidence. As good Bayesians should be. <laughs> <laughs> and I think a materialis materialistic answer will be suitable for just about every listener. I, I don't think we have a lot of people wishing that we, we had more dualistic yeah. perspectives. We don't get a lot of uh, feedback requesting that sort of thing. So. <laughs> <laughs> good. So I'm not sure where do we want to dive in, guys. Um, I have so many questions for you. We have a lot of questions. Uh -oh. You can ask us questions too. This doesn't have to be totally one-sided. If you have anything, you know, but you're you're the you're the you're the guest here, so we're gonna just pick on you. Well, okay. I mean, <laughs> if you guys are wondering what to ask, I can ask questions. For yeah, example, yeah. So, um, how do you come up with the topics that you want to address in your books, in your podcast, in your in your videos? When I first got 
started. The the episodes that I came up with, probably the first 10 or 20, were sort of personal pet peeves of mine, kind of hot buttons, things that had always annoyed me, you know, kind of silly beliefs in pop culture. Like, and a good example would be um, rods. Rods being that, that photographic phenomenon where an insect flies past as the camera lens is open, and then over the length of the duration of the shutter, you see its wings trace a sine wave along the length of the distance the insect flew. So some of these people will look at these photographs and they'll say, hey, there must have been some invisible creature there that uh, is invisible to the eye but shows up on cameras and is shaped like a long, thin flying rod. Now, that's something that had been kind of a pet peeve of mine because you, you go on the Internet and you'll see there's lots of people who absolutely reject the very obvious explanation for how those pictures come to be. Once I got going, after I got past, you know, 10, 20 episodes or so, people started sending them in, and they continue to send them in way faster than I'd ever be able to catch up with. In fact, uh, today, based on a question someone asked me on Facebook, they said, how many ideas do you have in your idea folder? And I looked in there. In fact, I, this weekend, I had gone through and purged stupid stuff out of my idea folder, leaving only good topics. And there's 361 in there still to go. So that's at one a week. That's seven years worth of worth of episodes. On that topic, I noticed that you you write about or you you speak about both things that are popular misconceptions and mm-hmm. things that are unpopular misconceptions or you know fringe conspiracy theories or Bigfoot type things. Which are your favorite to address, and what do you think the um, proportion? of popular to unpopular that you addresses? I think the they're more unpopular. I'd say most people who listen to the show report, hey, three-quarters of these things I'd never even heard of before. And, and that's good uh, because if you take a strange idea, uh, and, and let me give an example, um, the vanishing village of Lake Anjakuni, This is a story that almost nobody's heard of, but uh, there was an old tale that a trapper in Canada, uh, boy, I want to say the 1800s, I'm not sure when it was, came upon a village where everyone had suddenly disappeared. You know, the meals were left half-eaten, that kind of thing. And uh, so there's sort of this ongoing legend of what happened to this uh, vanishing village of people. Now, that's a great little mystery that a lot of people have never heard of. I thoroughly enjoyed doing the research on that. It just turns out that the, doing historical research and documentary research has turned out to be the thing that I enjoy the most. Mm. But when you take a story like that that's unpopular, nobody's heard of it, there's still valuable lessons to learn in how we go about assessing that story. Because when you go out with your friends and someone says, you know, hey, eating hamburger gives you cancer, uh, that maybe that's a new one. You've never heard that one before. But now what are the tools that you pull out of your pocket to go about assessing the validity of that claim? So we can teach those same tools by teaching, talking about these old stories that nobody's heard of before. So there's 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 value in every type of mystery, whether they're popular or not. So. It seems to me from what I'm hearing that skepticism seems to be a lot about finding bad beliefs and and not being taken in by them, about uh, a process of filtering out bad beliefs. Is there any uh, method for forming new good beliefs in, in the skeptic society, or is that not something they concern themselves with too much? 
Well, certainly. I mean, there's there's no benefit in simply being an inherently negative process. Uh, I would never want to have an episode where I say, talk about a ghost story, for example, and say, hey, your ghost is not real. People who believe this story and who, who it's their sacred cow, whatever, I do not want to tell them, your ghost isn't real. That's stupid. That's, that's BS. Because that's simply inherently negative, and it leaves them with nothing. Instead, we want to leave people with something. We want to help them understand why people believe in this story uh, and how that thought process, that broken thought process that leads people to put faith in something that's flawed and not true, how that can lead them to make better decisions about their life in the future. And that's really what it's all about at the end of the day. The better the better you're able to understand our natural world, the better the quality of information that you have, the better decisions you're going to make in life based on that information. So I guess this gets back a bit to, um, we were talking earlier, I think last week or longer about this, but uh, with skepticism, you need to have some way to filter out bad beliefs. And that also seems to work, uh, unfortunately, for conspiracy theorists and the like, as you were saying at the beginning with the 9-11 truthers, that they can say, well, you know, how, where is your evidence that the buildings weren't brought down? You know, according to them, jet fuel cannot melt steel beams, which is a, you know, really big piece of evidence for them. How is skepticism being misused by them? Well, in, in that case, you, there's a tremendous amount of evidence that steel-framed buildings melt from fire all the time. Uh, to cling to a belief like that, you have to be deliberately closing off the information that does not support your preferred conclusion. So if there are people out there, and I know that there are, who are absolutely committed to the fact that the U.S. government was behind 9-11, uh, there's usually some ideological motivation why they're so committed to that conclusion. So when they go out looking for information, they typically only look for information that supports their viewpoint. And anything they come across that doesn't, they simply ignore it, dismiss it, saying that's part of the conspiracy, that's something made up by the debunkers, or the, the disinformation agents, the government shills, whatever they are, and and they simply reject it. What other unifying features do you see amongst conspiracy theories? Is there something, other stuff that ties them all together? Well, just looking at the example of, of one aspect of 9-11, uh, whether airplanes hit the Twin Towers, you will find conspiracy theorists who believe that the airplanes were holographic projections. You will find people who believe that there were no airplanes at all and it was just a bomb in the building. You'll find people who believe that it was remote piloted airplanes. You'll find people who believe that they were cruise missiles lightly painted to re resemble airliners. Every possible, every possible alternate version of what happened. And these theories are all mutually exclusive because it can't be both of any two of those. So even though these theories are absolutely mutually exclusive of each other, they still consider themselves all on the same side, all promoting the same idea, uh, simply because the one thing that they all share is that the government's lying. We don't know what happened, but we just know that whatever the government says is not true. So they have their methods of discounting beliefs, or discounting evidence, rather, that uh, goes against their beliefs, but we have methods of discounting evidence as well. Like, we don't accept uh, eyewitness accounts of fairies in England. 
what uh, what makes our methods correct and their methods flop? Actually, Brian, before you dive into that, I wanted to just comment on the what I see as a relationship that's similar to the different bands of conspiracy theorists, like you said, the 9-11 ones, you know, controlled demolition versus all fake or whatever. That reminds me a lot of uh, different factions of religious groups. Right. And their their main yeah. thing is like, we just know that something's out there and we're all part of the religious group, even though a lot of our groups uh, are mutually exclusive. It's I wonder if any conspiracy theorists would just hate that comparison. Well, they're working backwards <laughs> from a conclusion, right? Right. Yeah. So that's that's a major difference. But they but they find the the unity in their the common enemy. Exactly. Or their or yeah. their common yeah. The that's a good way to put it. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, uh, what what was your question, Inash? I just wanted to. Jump oh, in. uh, that that they discount some evidence and we discount some evidence, and what makes our methods better? I think I think the method is a fine method. The difference is that they're ignoring the method. They're not following the method, and and uh, generally everyone should be. I try to. Uh, they probably believe that they are, and 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 simply aren't and and what the method is is simply the scientific method you you look for an observation that can be repeated that can be reproduced and then you try to explain that observation See, and I you agree. have to do things in that order oh no i agree with you completely i'm just the, the problem i have is that most people cannot do science themselves like i i personally cannot when when someone tells me that jet fuel melts steel or doesn't melt steel I don't have jet fuel and I don't have steel so I can't actually test it myself I'm stuck <laughs> relying on the people who actually did these tests and I think that is where a lot of these true believers try to say well you have your experts and we have ours and I mean there are cases where experts have been wrong just uh, maybe a decade or so ago no one believed that bacteria caused ulcers and that was a big upset in the, uh, in the medicine community how how can we know that you know we can trust our experts? It's not a matter of trust. It's a matter of what's the latest, greatest, best state of our knowledge, and that is always improving. And you can either choose to ride the leading edge of that wave, or or to reject it because you're saying, hey, knowledge has been improving. That means it wasn't as good in the past. That means it's probably not perfect now. That means I'm going to reject the entirety of it. Okay. The thing so with the thing with the ulcers is, is a great example. That's one of the best examples of how and why the scientific method works and why it's the best practice to follow. We had what we thought was great information. We drew the best conclusion. We thought we, we came up with, with what we thought fit the models best. It turned out there was a better explanation. Uh, it began as a fringe explanation. More people began reproducing the same results, and eventually it became the consensus view. And it's now the standard model of how ulcers work. That's a strength of the scientific method. It's not a weakness or a failing of it. It's not a, a problem with the scientific method, but whose, what papers should you trust? Um, would you want to talk to people about meta-analysis or peer-reviewed papers or experts that are supported by, you know, this percentage of the field versus that percentage of the field? As a layperson, you mean? Yeah, if you're talking to somebody and say, and they're saying, oh, what expert should I trust? If somebody comes in front of me and says, I am an architectural expert, if we're still referring to the um, Two Towers example, how do you know that that's a person that you should trust versus somebody else? Well, I, I wouldn't suggest that trust should come into the equation at all or that a person, any any person should be 
the best example of, of what the latest, greatest state of our knowledge is. If, if somebody genuinely wanted to learn the scientific method and wanted to learn what is the best explanation for you know, pick, pick your, pick your phenomenon, whatever it is, and was not coming to the table as an ideologue like a 9-11 conspiracy theorist person would be. What I would advise them is, um, I would first explain the scientific meaning of the word consensus. In pop culture, consensus is, you know, a, a room full of people and they all nod their heads and agree and say, yeah, that sounds pretty good to me. And that's the consensus. Well, that's of course not at all what it means in science. In science, what, what a consensus means is that basically the same experimental results have been repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated, and it has eventually became the standard explanation. So it's, it's not a soft thing, it's a hard thing. It's not uh, subjective, it's objective. So in that vein, if, if this is a person who wants to know about ulcers, I would say, you know, go to whatever it is, the American Ulcer Society, you know, the, uh, go to one of the authoritative boards and because they will have what is the current scientific consensus on it. I certainly would not say go to your GP. I, I might say go to 25 GPs, but not go to a GP. I've heard that a good rule of thumb is if the uh, community of, of, you know, experts in the field generally uh, agrees on about 90% uh, of 90% of them have come to the same consensus, that's considered more or less rock solid. And if you're doubting it, you're probably a crackpot. Whereas if it's like only 70%, then an informed layperson may still have something to say on the matter. And anything less than 50%, it's a field still in flux and you can't really make any definitive assertions one way or the other. Does that sound reasonable? Yeah, I, I think it does. I mean, and, and I think uh, it's it's important to acknowledge that virtually every scientific question does have uh, a, a leading edge where there's still unanswered questions and still research being done. But an example that's been given a number of times is like an onion uh, or even just think of a planet with a core. You've got the solid core of the science that's very unlikely that that's going to change significantly. But as we go out into the, the outer layers of the onion, uh, you know, where they starting to flake off and get flaky, that's where things change, and that's where we'll find new information, kind of on the fringe of any topic. But as far as the people who suddenly jump in and announce that the core of an entire field of science is wrong because they read something on the Internet – that's almost certainly not the case. So I have a question then on how skepticism handles things that are not uncertain, but not proven yet. And uh, this, this example is still fresh on my mind because just two episodes ago, we did a show on cryonics, which is an interesting case because all the experts say that there's no reason it can't work. But there's very little buying in the general population and even among uh people that, that uh, are in the field generally aren't all that uh, into it either because it's just it's not something that has been proven yet not something that you know is doable with our current technology is the fact that it's you know not impossible good enough or do you think there there needs to be some greater bar to clear you're talking about when when someone dies they want to freeze in case they can be woken up in 200 years or whatever more or less that kind of thing, yeah. I, I mean, I'm I'm not up to the latest and greatest in 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 that field, so I won't hazard an opinion on that. But 
I think I think you answered your question in your question when there's some good information for something, but we don't have solid proof. How do we approach that? Well, I think we approach it just with exactly that explanation. This is something there's interesting evidence for, but there's not yet proof. I, I can think of something else uh, that uh, I was just heard about the other day, and this has kind of been kicking around in alternative circles for a long time, this idea that uh, having hookworms in your body can protect you against asthma. Yeah. That is... Another example of something for which there is some evidence, but by no means are we going to say that it has successfully persuaded the bulk of the field of immunologists or, or, or whoever yet. Um, but it's something that we don't simply dismiss because there is some evidence. I'm not sure if it's ever going to get to the point where we decide it's a good idea. Everyone should have hookworms in their body, but <laughs> but, but we'll see. It's important to uh, to understand um, when a field needs to be uh, carefully qualified with with language like that. I just wanted to clarify something. We've we asked a bit about conspiracy theories. We might get back to that. I just wanted to. We we might sound like we're defending conspiracy theories in general or any particular one, but we're not. We're we we <laughs> we, we try. Um, are you it's familiar? too late. I've already written you off. Oh, shit. <laughs> well, I'm just trying to defend my Illuminati masters here. Oh man. Well, I, we got to keep those checks coming in. So, um, no. Are you familiar with uh, Steel Manning? No. It's it's like the opposite of Straw Manning. So like you you oh. encounter some bullshit position. And you say, okay, well, how can I make this the best it can possibly be? So that that's something that we try to do a lot. Uh, so that way when I destroy it, it stays destroyed. Exactly, right? So, I mean, you know, you, if you beat a, a crappy argument, you it's it's still kind of there. But if you can build up the argument to be the best it can be and then still beat it, then that, that is more convincing to them and to yourself. And it's possible that you can build up an opposing argument and find that it's unbeatable and have to change your mind. But so yeah, what we're doing, I think, is we're trying to steel man conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists' mindsets. We're not uh, endorsing any of that mumbo jumbo. Well, sometimes super unlikely things actually do happen, as someone who's a conspiracy theorist will happily point out. Mm. Uh, well, the problem there... is, oh, uh, sorry, just to just to argue that really quick. The problem is predicting that in advance, though, right? Mm -hmm. So saying, well, sometimes sometimes really unlikely things happen. That's not evidence in favor of any single unlikely thing beforehand, mm -hmm. right? So that's what I would say to the conspiracy theorist. Yes, <laughs> that's a good answer. Thank you. I was actually wondering, um, Ryan, if you have ever been very surprised by something, one of the topics, or something that you found out to be true that you didn't originally think was. I would say I've, I've certainly learned a lot. Really, the only thing I've ever been able to come up with that I was completely wrong about was the whole vitamin C cures a cold. Oh, because like what was your, so what was your people, position? Well, like so many people, I was raised to say, hey, you've got a cold, take vitamin C. Take a bunch of vitamin C. It cures your cold. And I was still taking vitamin C every time I got a cold halfway into the run of Skeptoid until I finally, I think it was a student questions episode where where I had to dive in. And and to my great surprise, I learned that that was information that would, had never been medically accepted and was a crank theory from, from day one since, since Linus Pauling's uh, invented it. So that was uh, something that definitely surprised me. It's really the best example. I mean, there's a lot of things that I learned. Um, I'd also, very similarly, I thought that carrots eating take, eating carrots were good for your eyesight and was fascinated to learn the whole history of that, which is actually something I just gave in a talk uh, two days ago on, um, on uh, religious myths. 
Oh boy, I could, I, I'm about to, I could launch into one of my big things here because it was, it was such a fascinating history for how that story came about and why people believe it. Wasn't it something to do with World War II? It, it was to do with World War II, yes. It was the, it was a cover story that the British put out to explain why the British fighter pilots were having such great success at night against the German bombers. When in fact, it was, it was yeah, it was, a, it was a disinformation story that they put out to, throw the Germans off the scent uh, because the British had their radar up and running. That's and so fantastic. they just yeah. made something up. That was that was a real conspiracy. <laughs> wow. <Yeah. laughs> I happen to have um, one or more loved ones who are conspiracy theorists. Um, think the entire range from moon landing to 9-11 to school shootings. How, if you are talking to somebody who you care deeply about, and you want to help them update their ideas and believe true things, how would you go about that? Can I ask really quick, what is the conspiracy theory about school shootings? Oh, it's mostly that the government is making up fake school shootings and that everybody involved are actors. So that they can take away the guns. Oh man, yeah. it would be just easier to hire gunmen, wouldn't it? Hey, hey, hey. no! Let's not let's not <laughs> put those. Is not that evil, let's sir. Not put those ideas they will out bomb there. their own buildings. <laughs> you know, they will not shoot up their own schools. Yeah, the the Sandy Hook truthers. Are yeah. The, so how would you address someone that. like that? That's I, you know that's one of the most important questions. It's one of the most relevant questions. Is how do you how do you enjoy your own skeptical attitude without? Uh, causing all sorts of problems between you and your family and your friends? And where do you draw the line on when you should keep your mouth shut and when you should open your mouth? And I think that question, the, the, you should start with the, the null position on that, the, which is uh, you should keep your mouth shut unless there's darn good reason to open it. Uh, it's, it there's really no upside in arguing with, with a conspiracy theorist. It, 99 times out of 100, it's just going to make them mad and make them dislike you, and you're almost never going to change their mind, especially when it's someone that's in your family. I just, I just don't see the value. Um, I keep my mouth shut virtually all the time now. Um, Why do you argue like on the internet then, if if you wouldn't argue with your family? Well, but I, that's that's my job. I mean, is to put this information out into the out into the public. Um, that that's that's different from bringing it into your own living room. And what I try to do with my public position with uh, with the podcast and everything is I I try to put some good general rules out there that people can learn to follow and and hopefully um, going back again make better decisions about their lives. Um, to do that, you have to step on people's sacred cows uh, because many people are strongly inclined to take that as a personal attack against their cherished beliefs. And it's something that is really easy to do by accident, no matter how try, how diplomatic and how positive you try to be. Uh, someone's going to uh, interpret it as an attack, and I don't find any value in bringing that into the Thanksgiving dinner. Hmm. But if, if you have already decided that just like on a one-on-one -on -one with someone that you love, you really should try to help them on this, is there like any gentle general guidelines that you can slip into them without like sure. attacking, but things that'll maybe help them over the long haul? Sure. Um, you can, you can start by finding the common ground in, in cases where this happens. Um, in fact, one of the episodes I did maybe, I don't know, five years ago or so was a, a letter sent in by a family 
and one of um, one of the people in their family had um, had ALS, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, and was on a pretty rapid downhill slope, and was using up all of his money on alternative therapies. And the kind of the family wanted to do like an intervention. They wanted to stop this guy saying you were you were wasting your money because it was on um, Edgar Casey psychic healing stuff. I mean, not even remotely plausible alternative therapies. He was just basically going for straight up magic. And um, so I, I, I did an episode specifically for this family. How do you go about approaching this when when it is necessary to step in because someone's strange belief is actually becoming harmful? And that's really, I think, the point at which you do want to step in and say something. If they just believe their poodle talks to God, fine, let them believe that. There's no need for a conflict. But when there's an actual problem, yeah, maybe an intervention is necessary. And I just say you start by finding common ground. What are the silly things that he does that that he does reject, and why does he reject them? You know, maybe it's uh, UFOs and aliens, what it, Bigfoot, whatever it is. Come up with anything that you can agree on, and then help him to understand why he rejects that. What what are the claims about Bigfoot that that you find silly, and why do you find them silly, and what's silly about them, and acknowledge that uh, why do anthropologists not believe in Bigfoot? What are their reasons for that? And you can kind of swing him around, and pretty soon he's building his own argument against why should he be going to magicians to treat his ALS. Nice. I think I think that's the way to do it. I think I'm the only one of the three of us who's listened to every episode at least once, and uh, the episode that I was going to mention this, but I, I figured you wanted to go into it, and that was... I think you're right. It was in the 200s, and it was Despicable Vulture Scumbags was the name of the episode. <laughs> That's it, yes. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a really good one, and it had, like you said, it was the whole point was when it finally became too much of an issue. And I think, Brian, I met you at TAM 8, and that was the year that Phil Plate gave his Don't Be a Dick speech. Oh, yes. And he made some of the same points about finding common ground, and uh, he had the audience, he said, hey, who, who here used to believe in something, you know, UFOs, Bigfoot, whatever bullshit, and a lot of people raised their hands. And then he said, all right, well, how many of you changed your minds because someone got in your face, yelled at you, and called you an idiot? And then only, what was that comedian's name? Um, Paul Provenza raised his hand. And the next day he clarified that the guy who shouted at him was Pendulet. So, um, but that, that to me has always been the way about going, going about it. So I, when you mentioned the vitamin C thing, I had a cold last month and I had no less than three people saying, oh, eat some of these oranges or, you know, go get some of the, the emergency stuff. And I'll just politely say thanks. I'll keep that in mind or, you know, whatever. I'm not going to, well, you know, uh, that that's all bullshit. I can, I can point you to some peer reviewed papers. Cause what I, I usually do when they say that, the sort of thing, it's like, well, you know, would have helped if I would, would have started weeks ago. Too late now. Just kind of, you know, casually give them that kind of thing. And most people, you know, they don't, they don't question it or anything. They're like, Oh, okay. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, if someone handed me an orange, I'd say thanks and eat it, but you know, that's just free food. Yeah. But, if they if they wanted to give me some, oh my grandma makes this great recipe for you know this this it's like a cocktail you take when you're sick I'd be like ah oh, I'm I'm all cocktailed out thanks <laughs> at that point I'd have to politely decline even if it came down to an argument but yeah that's and that that's that's exactly the way that I the way that I roll as well I had a a very very horrible knee injury one time and everyone in the world was coming to me with oh you should here's my acupuncturist's card and everything and. Uh, yeah, just say they're they're trying to do you a kindness. You thank them for it. You know, yeah, maybe maybe I'll call them. Thank you. <laughs>
Do you find that... I kind of get the feeling that both skepticism and rationality have a dick problem. Where, uh... I mean... <laughs> I got the craziest looks from both my co-hosts. <laughs> By a dick problem, I mean that uh, people often think that we are dicks. Like, you're just trying to shit all over everyone's parade. We just like to, you know, believe and and be warm and fuzzy. And you're coming in here being an asshole like, er, none of that's true, you know. Well, actually, er... And it's, it's kind of hard to fight that because... Yeah. A lot of things that people believe is bullshit, and it's really hard to be, you know, kind about that. Not kind, yeah. but it's hard uh, to be... That's very true. I mean, if anyone who's listens to, you know, the, to, to, to Skeptoid, I think it would be very hard to conclude that I come out uh, uh, mocking people and attacking people and making fun of weird beliefs. Um because I'm very careful about that, and it's something I believe strongly in in um, in in not 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 being that way. And yet, every time I talk to a family member or a friend who believes in some strange thing, they always describe my show as mocking, cynical, you know, any negative word they can think of. Mm-hmm. If it if it doesn't support their cherished belief, then it's Everything in the world is wrong with it. So it's you're right. It's very difficult not to be seen or taken in a negative light, no matter how positive you are. And I think I, there's actually, um, you know, the, this show that's on right now with Adam ruins everything. Yeah. He has the, quite a bit of the content on his show. I mean, he goes, you know, he goes covers the whole spectrum of everything in in society. But a lot of what he covers is weird science beliefs, pseudo scientific beliefs. And his shtick is to come right out and make fun of the fact that, yes, he's being a jerk, and yes, he's being patronizing and cynical and everything else. He just he just takes that up front and leaves the criticizers nowhere to go with the issue. So I think that's a that's a great way to to handle that particular marketing problem is is the way he does it. Comedically. What was, what was that show? Adam ruins everything. Adam ruins everything. Yeah. It's pretty good, but yeah, I mean, it, it does have the thing where he just like embraces the dick, and I'm like, I wish there was some like Penn and yeah, Teller's his, bullshit. His whole yeah, character exactly. is this annoying little guy. Yeah, is there is there any way to not be viewed as annoying by people? Yeah, Penn and Teller's bullshit had that problem too. Yeah, uh, don't feed chickens to chickens. Oh, they did that. Yeah, they yeah, were... I loved that show until that happened. What actually? Happened? And I love Penn and Teller's bullshit until they had a PETA. I think it was PETA's bullshit. Peter has some significant problems, so mm-hmm. I was on board with that. But um, one of the things that they did on the show to just show how dedicated they were to being assholes is they had chickens on and they fed chickens oh. to chickens. And that's that's kind of needlessly dickish. Right. There's a little bit of that needlessly, needless assholery going on. And I've never met the people, and I'm sure they're very nice. They were nice when I met them. But that's <laughs> well, Teller. Teller didn't say anything. He never does. But Penn was nice. And not even in real life. <laughs> I'm sure he does, but he didn't when I when I was briefly introduced to them. Okay. Yeah, I think he just. He, I think his thing is he just stands it. around quiet. Staying in character. Yeah. yeah. Makes it a lot easier, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I have a question for you. So yes. you've, you've talked a little bit about how what you're doing by going through these different topics is showing people the method that they should be using to distinguish science from pseudoscience, truth from falsehood, and figure out what facts are more most reliable. Um, out of all of the topics that you've addressed, is there any single topic 
that you think is the absolute most important thing that you've spoken about? Well, that is a very good question. Um, I mean, the obvious, the obvious answer, I'm not sure this is, this is the best answer, but the obvious answer is the whole global warming question. Sounds important to me. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's hard to even talk about. It's very, very clear that we're in for trouble. What's less clear to me is that we're not going to be able to adapt to it. And I think of some of the other topics that uh, we've talked about, like peak oil, which is kind of a, the diametric opposite of, of global warming, but the, the peak oil conspiracy theory is, is people, it's, I'm not sure if it's a conspiracy theory. It's, it's the belief that, uh, at some point oil production is going to be at such a rate that uh, we're going to get the last of the easily obtainable oil and then oil production is going to drop off dramatically and suddenly there won't be any significant oil production because we will have gotten it all and then overnight our cars are going to stop running uh, people are going to be running wild in the street eating their dogs and cats and cannibalizing each other that went from zero to a hundred really fast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and 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 that's what the the peak oil people, some of the more extreme peak oil people, think that. Huh. And there's another one with with peak phosphorus, for example, for uh, for fertilizing our crops. And there's a number of things like that. And those have all historically been proven wrong because society adapts, technology adapts as as oil becomes more expensive. Other alternatives are going to become commoditized and they're going to become cheaper and we're not going to need the oil so much. Uh, that has, is what has always happened with, with global warming. I don't know that it's going to be that easy. I don't know that we are going to be able to adapt as quickly as, I mean, we've already gone too far. When, when you look at, um, I was, I was really lucky to go a, a couple of weeks ago at UC Irvine. Um, Stephen Chu came and spoke, and he was Obama's first uh, Secretary of Energy. Um, he's been an IPCC author. He's he's been big in climate change for his whole career, and he's one of the world's foremost experts on it. And he was giving a presentation to kind of a, it was a layman level presentation, saying, "Here are the smoking guns. Here is the." simplest most obvious proof of this 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 and this and it's really it's it's stuff that's absolutely indisputable for example the amount of carbon that's in our atmosphere now this this unprecedented amount of carbon that's in our atmosphere people will say oh that's because of forest fires or oh that's because of uh, melting tundra and it releases carbon uh, they'll have all kinds of rationalizations for it but no, there's actually a very clear proof for that carbon in our atmosphere comes from human burning of fossil fuels. It doesn't come from volcanoes. It doesn't come from deforestation or cows or anything else. We know it comes from the burning of fossil fuels. And that's isotopic analysis, carbon, basically carbon-14. All carbon is not the same carbon. Mm -hmm. And a large percentage of the uh, carbon in our atmosphere is provably created by the burning of fossil fuels, which happens by humans because those have to be sucked up out of the ground. It doesn't happen from forest fires or volcanoes. So there are absolutely indisputable smoking guns that put together every piece of this puzzle for global warming being caused by humans. So I, I remember, must have been in the 100s, didn't you do an episode 
So this would have been, you know, if it was in the 100s, that'd be something like eight to ten years ago. Yeah, yeah, heating uh, up to global warming, I think. That's right. But but yeah. it, it came off as much more of like global warming skeptic as opposed to global it warming did. emergency. Yeah, it did. And and the reason for that is because it was eight or ten years ago, and I was not as familiar with the issue as I should have been. And I think the uh, consensus was well. No, no, the consensus was still was still very clear. I would say reporting of uh, science reporting had not yet switched over completely. In fact, uh, I remember that at just about the same time that that episode came out, Michael Shermer had his column his column called Skeptic in Scientific American magazine where he was only just then switching over from global warming skeptic to global warming activist. And I remember the line he closed that article with was, uh, the time for skepticism has passed and the time for activism has come. And I came to that point myself, I think, um, after I did that first episode. So the, 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 the later episodes that I've done on the subject are, are much more clear. And I am in the process of going back through my oldest episodes and fixing the ones that need to be fixed. Every time I record, um, I try to do one of the old ones. The only reason I haven't done it more is just because the, the sheer workload is just extremely high for me to, to keep up with. But that is one of the episodes that uh, will be Uh, rewritten and re-recorded. Oh, cool. Well, first of all, now I have new stuff to listen to on Skeptoid. Uh, but I just I, the only reason I brought that up was because I was aware that your view had shifted, and Bayesian updating and changing your mind is a big uh, applause thing in the rationalist community. So I wanted to just... Huzzah! Just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, you know, that's another place where the scientific consensus thing, I, I consider it important, because I've heard that there's a more than 95% consensus on the global warming thing, too. And it's just one of those things where almost no one has the time to get a degree and learn everything you would need to learn to have a fully informed opinion. But you can look and see, you know, what do the people who have gotten the degrees and do know about all this stuff think? And with the exception, I think, is in the single digits in the number of scientists who who uh, even slightly doubt the, the, the global warming connection. Yeah, and I think I think the ones who the ones who uh, I mean there are there are a single digit percentage of actual climate scientists who are who are not on board with the consensus, and I suspect that those are the professional climate scientists who work at particular think tanks or institutes or in certain countries where um, they they tend to favor economic uh, issues over science issues. Yeah, but now, I think, now we're imputing motives, which is, you know, like a, a more of a conspiracy theorist thing. Well, I'm happy enough to say thing, that though. they're just so vastly overruled that we can ignore them. And what is it? Some 5 to 10% of the National Academy of Sciences is still believes is, in God. is devoutly yeah. theistic. Yeah. So, I mean, you're going to get some, some percentage of people who are, I'm going to go out on a limb and say factually wrong, <laughs> even even in expert communities. I think the thing that pushed me over the edge on that was, oh, I can't remember the year. I want to say it was probably 2009-ish or so, so, you know, six, seven years ago. I was on a panel uh, at uh, UC Irvine 
debating climate change. There's there's a, a group of super wealthy people who've all graduated from the business school and gone on to become multi-zillionaires, and they've created this little club where they come back and they bring in experts and just have them talk to them about about subjects. And uh, so I was fairly honored to be one of the invited guests. They had on the the, the panel was a panel of three people. On the one side was uh, Michael Prather, who is a professor at UC Irvine in atmospheric sciences, and he was one of the principal authors on the IPCC-4 report, so arguably one of the world's leading experts on the global warming problem in the IPCC position papers. On the other side was John Coleman, who was the founder of the Weather Channel. He's a guy from from the, the news media, and he founded the Weather Channel, and so people believe that he is a climate expert, and he is a full-on, full-on conspiracy theorist. He believes every crazy conspiracy theory you've ever heard of, and is, of course, a global warming skeptic. So uh, and he, he, his particular belief on that is that all the scientists are, are in it for money, they're all being paid, they're all secretly on the payroll of Big Solar or whatever it is. They've all got their investments, uh, you know, they've all got hedge funds, you know, banking on uh, the decline of the oil industry, and uh, it's, a, it's a giant conspiracy all against him. And then they had me, um, and they had me actually with him. Hmm. And the reason was because the title of my show, Skeptoid, they said, oh, skeptic. Oh, he must be a global warming skeptic. Let's put him with him. Hmm. So, <laughs> but uh, anyway, that that's neither here nor there. The thing is, after the talk, uh, we're having lunch. I sat next to Michael Prather, and uh, he had a copy of the IPCC report with him. And I got to ask him you know, a half dozen, half dozen uh, burning questions that I had, and his answers were so crystal clear, and he knew exactly what page to turn to and explained everything to me in, in great terms that it left, uh, left all of my questions completely answers, and, and any doubts that I had were absolutely destroyed. Um, and, and among the questions I had were, were kind of logical questions that the people on the street might, even who are on board with global warming, might want to ask. One of them I, I remember was, um, you know, hey, we can, we can know how much carbon is in the atmosphere, and we can know how much carbon we can remove from, from the atmosphere by doing emissions control or whatever, but we can't know what effect that's going to have on the temperature, can we? Because there's no experiment like that has ever been run. And the answer that he showed me was to turn to a particular page that shows the probability curves. You know, and, and all of these predictions that the IPCC reports make are probabilities. They're not, they're often mischaracterized saying, oh, the scientists say sea level is going to go up 30 feet in, in 20 years or whatever it is. That's not true. The reports don't work that way. They are probabilities. Every possible outcome has a probability. And when we change the input variables to these equations, those probability curves recalculate and they change out a little bit. And when we change the amount of carbon input into the atmosphere, those probability curves change, and we can say that this is the possibility of this particular outcome, that's the possibility of that particular outcome. And, you know, we do actually have a pretty good handle on how this works, and the, this popular mischaracterization that you always hear saying that the IPC scientists have been wrong every time they predicted this disaster and it didn't happen, it's simply not true. They didn't predict that. They gave it a probability number. And the actual result uh, matched some probability number that was in the equation.
equations, and those equations get better and better every year. Nice. So, I don't know, I'm kind of rambling on this. but No, that's my favorite thing that I've heard you say. Yeah. I think, I think was, discussing probability a, curves and stuff is just, just singing to our bi- tunes. Yeah, so. As crazy as we're very big on probability. <laughs> we hear that our ears perk up, and we're like, ooh, treats. You know what? I just got, I just got an email today from... Um, let me make, write myself a note. I got an email today from UC Irvine. I, I live right by UC Irvine, and I have heavy UC Irvine DNA, so I'm obsessed with it, and that's everywhere I, where I go for all my science. But they sent me an email today with uh, Stephen Chu's lecture that I attended. They, they just put it on YouTube. So that might be something you want to link to. Yeah, um, uh, actually. It's a, Send that our way. We're, we'll we definitely put that on there. I'd love to link to that. Is there yeah. anything else that you would like us to link on this show? Anything you want to plug to our listeners? I want you to link skeptoid.com broadly across the top of your webpage. <laughs> Roger that. And a, and a big portrait of my face. Oh, can do. No, don't do that. That would frighten me. <laughs> we'll still have the link, though. We'll settle for putting the logo from the Skeptoid website, the Skeptical Eye. Wait, are you okay, saying that I can't have a portrait of your face? <laughs> well, it depends what you do with it, you know? Hey. <laughs> Dude, we are rapidly approaching our one hour. Did you have things that you wanted to finish up with? Um, well, I, I can I can talk a little bit about uh, some of the projects that I have coming up. Oh, um, yes, please do. You mentioned um, that uh, we're shooting uh, the sequel to Here Be Dragons. It's going to be called The Principles of Curiosity. For the longest time when I wrote it, I wanted to title it Principia Curiositas because that had such a great Newtonian sound to it. But then I learned that that Latin was not correct and all of the variations of the Latin that were correct didn't sound quite right. And then a majority of people finally convinced me, don't title it something that nobody's un- going to understand what the heck's about. Just give it a normal, plain English title. So I dumbed the title down to Principles of Curiosity, and it's going to be very cool. And that's going to be directed by Brian Keith Dalton, better known to most audiences as Mr. Deity. Ah, excellent. I love Mr. Deity. See, that that ever since Harry Potter came out with its crazy bastardized Latin for all the spells, <laughs> I think people have been much more okay with crazy bastardized Latin that doesn't necessarily mean anything. But you can figure out what it's supposed to mean. Wingardium Leviosa. I, I, I so I so want to agree, and I, I think I think that the the best good though is finding finding the widest possible audience. And you know, I I I, I aim these movies at everything from elementary school on up. So I think it's I think it's smarter to stick with the the most broadly appealing title. Um, the other thing I got going on is a um, a feature length documentary um, that will hopefully see a limited theatrical release uh, that I'm uh, co-producing. Skeptoid Media is executive producing it. Uh, it's going to be called Dark Discoveries, and it is all about scientists having been misrepresented on popular TV documentaries and and movies, having their words twisted, being edited out of context, trying to make scientists sound like they were saying the opposite of what they actually came on the show to say. And we've been uh, we've been talking to so many people, and there's so many astonishing stories of this having happened that it's really going to drop people's jaws watching this and see how how flagrantly. Uh, the TV networks will do this to us. And uh, that's going to be directed by Emery Emery, who is uh, better known for his the projects he's done like um, uh, The Aristocrats. And uh, and he, right now he's he's uh, directing a movie called A Year Without God. 
but he's a he's a really talented uh, editor and director, and I think he's going to be perfect for this. And he's a good friend. Uh, and um, I've also got a, a video short series called The Conspirators that's animated. Hmm. Uh, I've done one episode. <laughs> I'm stretched so thin. I just haven't been able to get more episodes done. But I've got two more episodes that I'm going to be well, not shooting because they're animated, but uh, um, animating, and I'm getting uh, vo- uh, recordings from the voice actors in that. The conspirators is fun because it's basically a peek inside the headquarters of the New World Order, and it turns out that uh, everything the conspiracy theorists believe is exactly what they're doing at the headquarters <laughs> of the New World Order. Uh, what would that world be like? Well, you will have to go see it. In the, I think in the late 70s, someone wrote a trilogy called the Illuminatus Trilogy, which is basically the same thing. And it is crazy. The first episode was on chemtrails, where the New, New World Order guys were giving themselves an update on chemtrails and how they work. And one of them was raising some objections, you know, hey, but that won't work because of, you know, the ionosphere and whatever, all, all, all of these basic science objections. And they basically have him carted out of the room <laughs> under armed escort. Excellent. So I got two more episodes of that coming about, and that's um, that's at patreon.com slash conspirators. Is that aimed for children, or is that more of an adult-aimed uh, show? No, it's more of an adult thing. Okay. Sounds fun. So earlier you were mentioning uh, we, we talked about dealing with conspiracy theorists that we care about. And, you know, I think for the most part, you know, if I had a loved one who didn't believe in the moon landing, well, as long as we didn't talk about that, that really wouldn't be a thing between us. But I think it would drive me insane knowing that they're the kind of person that has these failures of, of thinking. So I, I'm always still str- still stuck on trying to find a way to address it and fix it. And one way that I've approached with other topics, um, actually, I think this was a recommendation from somewhere on one of your episodes, you know, pick something, and you actually mentioned this earlier too, but pick something that uh, you can agree on either conspiracy-wise or just to, like as far as an introduction to skepticism, you know, pick something that is so non-inflammatory like the bygone pipes or that vanishing village, something that no one really cares about, but mm-hmm. that just gives an introduction on how to think skeptically or watch Here Be Dragons, the free 40-minute video. <laughs> but with, with conspiracy theorists, you know, I could imagine, so say I have a friend who is just full-on 9-11 truther, but they're they're very big in favor of accepting the moon landing. Well, we could go over for all the reasons that moon landing hoaxers deny the moon landing and then say, well, how many of these sound like the things that you use to justify your 9-11 conspiracy theory-ism? And then, I don't know, I've never I've never tried this in real life. Maybe they, maybe a light would go off with them, I don't know. But then maybe that's just me being hopeful. Well, you know, if you, if you, I mean, having never tried it before in real life, you'll find it's a lot tougher in practice than it is in, in theory. Uh, it's, you know, try it out <laughs> sometime. Try it out on one of your friends that you don't mind... Uh, uh, upsetting. I don't but, want uh, to. I don't want to alienate my boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he's the person who I'm thinking of, who I want to gently get into a direction where he's willing to give up some of his more egregious conspiracy theories. And mm-hmm. um, now- it's not really an option. It's not an option to me to not discuss that with him and to not let him know that I think he's wrong and he tends to be a very open-minded person who who wants to believe the right thing so I'm wondering how to take that open-mindedness and desire to believe true things and and help set him on the right path 
it, it, it is it is tough with loved ones, but uh, I, I've got a very good friend who is a, a good skeptical guy, and for a long time he was dating this girl who was amazing in every way, except that she believed every kind of uh, health woo that there was, and he just couldn't put up with it. And, and eventually it became the end of their relationship. They, they were just... they. They just had their worldviews were just too different. She believed that you know the big pharma conspiracy and and the big food conspiracy and big toxins and everything else and and just couldn't couldn't come back down to earth. So at some point he decided, you know, if this relationship's going to go anywhere, we're going to have to get through this sooner or later. And so he did he did his best job and um, and it uh, destroyed the relationship. And it's probably for the better. He's married to a much better woman now. But. <laughs> um, so, you know, if you if if you do want to go there and eventually you may have to, then, yeah, I mean, just try doing what we talked about. I would suggest first trying it on some other friends. Find some friends who are into juice cleanses. We all have <laughs> friends who are into juice cleanses. And uh, <laughs> we're nodding and, our heads. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and start them off with, you know, maybe maybe vaccines, because. Most people are still on the right side of the vaccine question, and chances are your friends are too, and they've also heard all of the anti-vaccine rhetoric. So that that might be a good place to start. That's you know in in enough of the same ballpark that you can start you know kind of working working the reasons why they still have faith in vaccines, working those around to why they believe juice cleanses are are magical. I'd and, be scared uh, and, that they would turn into an anti-vaxer. <laughs> You can have the opposite no. effect. Yeah. <laughs> There's a great follow-up episode in the future, though. And see how that went. Can you yeah, just can you just have... solve this problem for us, just so we can all relax and go home? <laughs> the only reason we called. Thank you so much for joining us. It has been great having you on. It's been a lot of fun being here. I wish I could talk about this stuff all day, every day. Well, I really appreciate it, and uh, I'm certainly not opposed to doing another episode if you have time, you know, down the line sometimes. So. We can find a specific topic that you want to talk about or that we want to talk about or whatever works. So I'd actually be super interested in talking more about climate change sometime. Okay. You know where to find me. Well, All sounds right. great. Hey, thanks a lot, Brian. This this was a lot of fun, and uh, I really appreciate you, uh, especially getting our, our schedules organized. I don't know if I told you guys we, I, for, I got I got the time zones confused, and then on Saturday he was like, "All right, cool, talk to you tomorrow," and I was like, "What you mean Monday?" And he's like. Right, today's not Sunday. <laughs> now we have an international dateline problem. <laughs> but it all worked out, and I'm glad it, it got together. I was half afraid that at 4 o'clock I was going to get a message from you and be like, so, you guys are late, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you weren't on, so. <laughs> awesome. All right. That was funny. Thanks again. Bye for now. Bye. Okay, folks. Thanks, Ryan. Take care.